Uh, grab a Bible and you can follow along. And then at the very end, I'll have you join me reading a couple of verses. I'm going to read out of Psalm 145. Psalm 145. This is entitled, Great is the Lord. And it's a song of praise of David. Psalm 145 verse 1 says this, I will extol or praise my God and King and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another. We have that going on here this morning. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty, on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness, shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, that's all, everybody, and His mercy is over all that He has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord. All your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all His words and kind in all His works. Verse 14, the Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all His ways and kind in all His works. The Lord is near to all who call on Him, to all who call upon Him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear Him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love Him, but the wicked He will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless His holy name forever and ever. Read with me, if you will, verses 1, 2, and 3. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. That's who we're worshiping. Amen? We're in James chapter 4, and I'm going to read verse 11 and 12. We're just going to do two verses this morning. James chapter 4, verse 11 says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Verse 11 uses the word brothers, talking about speaking evil against them. And then again he uses brother, speak against a brother, 
and then judging a brother. And then in verse 12, the very last sentence, he uh, opens the door a little wider and says, who are you to judge not just a brother, but your neighbor? And so he uses a more inclusive term. Um, in the family relationship or in a faith family relationship, which James is referring to here because he's writing to the scattered tribes abroad, um, where one should be loved and encouraged and supported and have patience extended towards them, the contrary often happens. Oftentimes this happens when we're disappointed with something someone has said or done, um, so we feel justified, inappropriately justified, but we feel justified uh, in speaking against that person. And James highlights that it happens with one's neighbor also. So it's not just a brother in the Lord. He broadens the scope of this activity um, on the part of believers. And I wanted to give a little bit of a lengthy illustration this morning. In 1987, I had to ask Kathy because I've forgotten that far back. But in 1987, Kathy and I were new missionaries with the Brazil Gospel Fellowship Mission a small group that at the time, I think, Daniel, that we had somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 missionary units. And a missionary unit meant a husband and wife team or someone that was single. Uh, and so we had uh, around 30 um, American missionary units along with quite a few Brazilian pastors as well. We arrived in Brazil in 1987 with three small kids. Kristen was five, Ashley was three, Brian was one, and Andrew would later be made in Brazil. Um, we arrived with another family, um, young also, that had kids about the same age as our kids. Um, and there had been one other younger family with no kids that had arrived six months before that. Uh, before that, though, the Brazil Gospel Fellowship Mission hadn't really experienced any younger, new missionary growth for some time. And so while they wanted new missionaries. They weren't really ready for us, um, if you want to say, say it that way. Um, but at the same time, each missionary had their own responsibility and the place where they needed to work. And so there wasn't any, um, this is what new missionaries need to do kind of a person. Uh, each one had their own focus in, mystery, in, in ministry. Some of the some of the older missionaries who had been in the country literally four decades, five decades, 40 years, 50 years, weren't as easy to get as along with as one might expect from God's saints. Some of them were a little narrow and a little um, sandpapery, let's just put it that way. There were some that were confident that the guitar that Chiago played this morning was of the devil uh, and that drums were of the devil. And that was beginning to be a problem because Brazilians who had come to know the Lord enjoyed worshiping with drums and guitars, and so now there's a little bit of a problem. Others believed that anything other than a long dress to a lady's ankles was inappropriate. Uh, I read a statement that said something like this, uh, you came to share the gospel with the natives. These natives had more education and money than we did sometimes. Um, you came to share the gospel with the natives and they're putting their clothes on. Why are you taking yours off? And so there was a narrowness that was there. Some seemed to have grown, some, not everybody, some seemed to have grown somewhat cold to the relationship aspect of the ministry. 
They wanted to proclaim the truth, and that's critical, but the relationship part of it um, seemed to be absent. Don't hear me say that everything was all negative. God was working in the lives of Brazilians. He continued to work in the lives of the American missionaries as well. Um, once we'd been there a couple of years, one of the older Brazilian men, Daniel, you would know this guy, Chico Pompeo, one of the older Brazilian men expressed the situation in this way. We're grateful, and he said this to me, we're grateful for the older missionaries because they brought us the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They just forgot to show us how to love. And so that was kind of an air that was present. And yet in the midst of it, there's always people and, and genuineness of salvation and just kind of gotten stale. So when we got together with uh, one family, especially this other family that we actually traveled to Brazil with, kids about our age as well, kids of our age, the topic, the topic of conversation seemed to always turn to complaining and criticizing and speaking against some of the older missionaries. And we justified it because the difficulty was that usually what we said was true or had a large measure of truth that was in, in, ingrained into it, or at least a significant portion. But it was done in such a way at the time and with individuals that couldn't resolve anything, that be, it became speaking against and speaking evil of and criticizing our brothers that were other missionaries as well. It is so easy that, to happen. And, and whenever I left getting together, which I needed because we were in a new culture and everything in life was new, and so we needed the freshness of someone to encourage us along the way, but whenever I would leave those times... I, I left feeling spiritually soiled, be, like I had grieved the Spirit of God, because the thing that James addresses in James chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, ended up being the very thing that we were doing. Even though we justified in our minds, and sometimes even verbally, why we did that. What's interesting is this kind of conversation, I step out of the illustration, seems to start Maybe it doesn't end here, but it starts with people that are close to you. And you're just as susceptible to it as Jerry and Kathy knew in Brazil were susceptible to it. And it's a downward spiral. And I asked Jay if he would project on the screen behind me the downward spiral that James chapter 4, verse 11 and 12 gives us when we speak against someone. And there's three different translations that I pulled words from. One says, speak evil of. Another speak, says, speak against. And another translation says, criticize. So you do something negatively, nothing positive is even intended. To speak evil, to speak against, to criticize. You could even use the word to slander. And so we found ourselves, um, I felt found ourselves criticizing and slandering those that should be helping us in Brazil Gospel Fellowship Mission. And there were many who did. Daniel's mom and dad, I worked, we worked with them, uh, and they were just tremendous. Um, but we found ourselves criticizing some, and as a result of it feeling soiled, and I feel like we grieved the Holy Spirit. The downward spiral when speaking against someone, James chapter 4, verse 11, and you can follow in Scripture too if you want. I speak evil against my brother, and then he says, I judge my brother, 
and then I speak evil against the law, I judge the law, I'm not a doer of the law, but a judge, and I've assumed God's role as lawgiver and judge, the only one who's able to save and destroy. And James ends verse 12 with, and who are you to do that? That's a downward spiral. And I want to encourage us this morning, and I feel like this is pretty timely for our church as well. We feel like the Lord is working here. Um, the worship is dynamic. There are more people joining worship teams, um, life groups as well. And if you're interested, talk with Joshua about life group. Joshua, raise your hand in case I don't know you. Um, and so where God works, there is also an enemy who also works. And we have to recognize that and not be surprised when we recognize that an enemy is at work as well because God is at work and he has an enemy, the deceiver, Satan, um, who, who stands against him and all that he does. And so if he's at work, um, the enemy's going to be at work. And, and I, I'm going to say here in a minute, I think probably the primary entrance that he gets into the church, a church family, is through what James is talking about here in James chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, speaking against or criticizing or being negative towards a brother. Likely the one beginning a conversation, us in Brazil or whoever James is talking to, didn't intend to land, I have assumed God's role as the judge, but that's where James says that it goes. And it's interesting, and I want to read this. You might want to open your Bible to it too. In Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16, I don't know why this is one of my go-to, it's not really an enjoyable scripture, but it's full of truth, says this. And I think James and what he's talking about fits in here. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, and feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who, who uh, breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brothers. And I think that's what James is talking about here. Somebody who, because of a critical spirit, probably because of something that happened or something that was said, reaches out in criticism not intending for restoration, but just to belittle that person. It's kind of the idea, and somebody said, I don't know who, I think it's in a song the kids listen to these days, making someone else smaller doesn't make me taller. And yet, it seems to be that that's what kind of happens sometimes. I'm speculating that a similar negative usage of one's speech is the root of the vast majority of family conflicts. I've seen it because I have people that come to me and ask for advice and I'm not a counselor by trade, but I know God's word and I can at least guide them to principles. But I'm guessing that the root of the vast majority of family conflicts, or if you own a small business or work in a small business, inner office conflicts or conflicts among your neighbors, um, is it lands right here as well. Speaking evil, speaking contrary, speaking against, criticizing, slandering, defaming someone. Um, think, of, think about this. Look at the poor example that a good majority of our political leaders give us, and they're on the TV telling us how important they are and that they're leading us. And they lead us in criticizing each other rather than seeking to represent us. Unfortunately, when there's conflict in the church, I'm imagining that the violation of speaking against one's brother is oftentimes present 
I've observed it many times. Maybe it's not the only problem, but oftentimes it's included, and many times it's the primary offense that I've spoken against my brother, not for the, not for the, not for the purpose of restoration or moving things forward, but they've done something or said something or made me uncomfortable. I'm just going to belittle them, and it becomes a problem. It can easily take on the he said, she said downward spiral, that downward spiral being I speak evil against my brother, I judge a brother, I speak evil against the law. We would never intend to do that by pointing our finger at somebody, but that's what James says we do. I judge the law. I'm not a doer of the law, but a judge. I have assumed God's role as the judge. It probably happens because of an unwillingness to address offenses in a God-prescribed way. And I'm not going to go real in-depth at the very end of this message in how God prescribes that we address problems, um, but I am going to mention that. But probably um, this speaking evil against happens because we choose not to address problems in a God-prescribed way, because it's difficult, it's hard, and it's relational. And maybe I don't have the relationship with somebody, and If I did, that makes me a little bit vulnerable, so I'm just going to stay in my little area, and what happens is I can find myself speaking evil or speaking contrary or counterdicting or criticizing someone. This gives place for the enemy, for the devil to work. This is spiritual battle where rubber meets the road. This is spiritual battle where rubber meets the road. I've seen this kind of communication destroy marriages. I've seen this. Jerry's seen this. I've seen this kind of communication destroy marriages and families and divide churches. I saw it in my first church 35 years ago. It was referred to among those present that day as Black Sunday. A church of 900 plus went down to 450. And it might not have been the primary issue, but certainly involved was speaking evil and criticizing one's brother. Now, Kathy and I just happened to be out on deputation that Sunday, so that was kind of nice. We didn't have to see all the ugliness, but it was ugly. And it wasn't just in one 24-hour day. It was over time. It took a church of 900 down to 450. It wasn't the only negative spiritual dynamic going on, but speaking evil against one's brother was clearly present. So the believer's tongue that was made to bless and build up and exhort is used in a contrary manner according to James chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. We bless God with our tongue, and he said earlier, chapter 2, that we curse those who are made in the similitude or the likeness of God, and now our tongue could be used to, to speak this way against a brother. The exhortation is really simple. It's the first sentence in James chapter 4, verse 11, where he says, Do not speak evil against one's brother. Um, to speak against or to criticize, speaking evil is likened to criticizing. And when we hear the word evil, oftentimes we think of things like taking the life of somebody or rape or something that's just horrible, and that is evil, obviously. But in this particular case, the word evil means morally bad or wrong to criticize. There's another word for evil that means wicked and depraved, But that's not the word that's translated here. So the word evil here means to criticize, to slander, something that's wrong. And so James is saying, don't speak 
critically, wrongly, inappropriately, morally inappropriately against your brother. Don't do that. This is significant enough that Jesus and Paul and Peter and James all speak about this. It's a real problem. I think it's a real problem for all of us because we still live in this nature, this skin that we have. Some other New Testament usages of this word, let me read them, this word evil. Romans 14 verse 19 says this, Therefore let us pursue the things which make for peace, and the things by which one may edify or build up another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. And so what was going on there is there were some that were eating food that was sacrificed to idols. And he even says all things indeed are pure. It was okay that they ate that. But if there was a weaker brother that was there and they were destroying that weaker brother, excuse me, Paul was saying, don't do that. That would be evil. Um, He says it's evil for the man who eats with offense. And so if I'm causing a weaker brother who's stumbling to... To, um, uh, to, to be offended, and it's an evil th- and, and but it's evil for the man who eats with offense. If I'm causing him to step into this evil, something that's morally wrong, something that's critical, something that he shouldn't do, then I'm participating in that evil. Um, and that's what Paul says in Romans 14 verse 19. This was interesting. Second Corinthians chapter 5 verse 10 speaks of the judgment seat of Christ. A judgment that believers will go through uh, prior to their eternal state. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. That's the New King James Version. The version that you have in front of you says whether good or evil. And so in the body of Christ, as a believer, as a follower of Christ, I have this capacity to do things like speaking against my brother, things that are critical or morally wrong or to slander someone. And there's there's going to be a cleansing time for that as well. That's another usage. 1 Corinthians 15.53 says this, Do not be deceived evil same same word here not the not the depraved wicked type that's true also just not spoken of in this verse do not be deceived evil company corrupts good habits so to say when someone let's just take it back to the illustration that i use so we step into this situation where we're going out for pizza we're under a lot of pressure we're trying to learn a language we're in a new culture and someone begins to step into criticizing older missionaries for me to think you know i'm not going to say anything but i'm just not going to be affected by that that's not true do not be deceived Um, bad company corrupts uh, uh, do not be deceived, evil company or bad company, it could be translated that, corrupts good habits. Colossians 3, 5, Therefore put to death your members which are on this earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desires. We're supposed to mortify them, put them to death. So when this temptation comes for me to speak against you because of something that you've said or something that you've done or I wanted you to do something and you didn't do it, um, for me to speak evil and criticize and have no goal of trying to bring restoration and life and, and take it forward, I'm to put that to death. And I have the ability to do that because I have the indwelling Holy Spirit and the truth of the Word of God. I can choose to do that and I can choose to not do that as well. We're instructed to put it to death. It's an imperative. First Peter chapter 2 says, Therefore laying aside all malice, all deceit, 
hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. Very same word. Without using the word, Paul would say this to the Corinthians. I fear lest when I come to you, to Corinth, I shall find you such, uh, I shall not find you such as I wish, and that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish, lest there be, and this is what happens when this evil, um, it, this evil influence is there, contentions and jealousies and outbursts of wrath and selfish ambitions and backbiting and whisperings and conceits and tumults, and that would be instability or confusion, many of which have evil speaking against a brother as their source, as their root. And we're not supposed to do that. That's James's exhortation. That's God's exhortation to us through James. James gives us another example in chapter 5, verse 9, where he says, Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge, the only one who has the ability to save and destroy, the judge is at the door. Rather than evil speech or behavior, Romans 12 says that we're not to be overcome by evil, that same word. He's not talking about depravity and wickedness. That's true also, but about this evil that can influence our lives. We're not to be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So rather than us speaking against these old cantankerous 60 grit sandpaper older missionaries, we should have gone and done good to them rather than speak contrary to them. That's what is being said here. And rather than you or I, when somebody's rubbed us the wrong way, justifying why it's okay to say something that isn't right, what we should do is seek to do good to that person in that situation. But it's not easy because it involves overlooking an offense. And so it's really difficult. Jesus would say in Luke chapter 6, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. And we think of that oftentimes with those on the outside of the body of Christ, but sometimes it can be inside the body of Christ. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. I mean, you think Jesus was surprised that Judas was taking money out of the purse? This all-knowing Jesus? No. And yet he chose Judas as the treasurer, and yet he tried to bless Judas as well. First Peter 3 says this, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning, here's our word, not returning evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, which would be insulting and berating. Don't do that, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. And then he continues, quoting the Old Testament, For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil, that's our word, and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That's the same word. Not the depravity word evil, but this particular word evil. We don't want the face of the Lord against us, and yet, and yet we can find ourselves falling into that. So there's a time for repentance. So maybe you're surprised with a situation. This is real life. Maybe a situation surprises you. And, you're, and you find yourself saying and speaking what you shouldn't, all right? 
you find yourself criticizing someone, justifying why you're criticizing, however it is that you do it, but you know that it's not got a good end in sight, and you might be, um, you, and you might use the undesirableness of the situation to justify why I'm able to be negative and critical in this particular way, or why you say the things the way you say them, you know, like talking down to somebody or um, using a negative tone to belittle other people or talking over someone. Um, we probably all know that. Making someone else smaller, thinking that it makes us taller. Life's situations don't have any control over us. Listen to this. Life's situations in the church, out of the church, in the family, out of the family, in your job, out of the job, they don't have any control over us unless we yield that control to them. We're indwelt by the Spirit of God, and we have the wherewithal, even though it's difficult sometimes, to respond in a way that's God-honoring. And James is confronting those among the 12 tribes scattered abroad saying, y'all need to quit doing this. And if that's the tendency of us, we need to as well, or when we find ourselves falling into that. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. When you're filled with the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit is a demonstration of your life, you have self-control. That's a portion of the fruit of the Spirit of God. Um, Until we call something what it is, we're never going to overcome it. And so if you look backwards over a day, over a week, over a month, and you find yourself, you know, that's kind of really who I am, and that's what I do, call it what it is, repent. God is very gracious. He wants to grow us in the Lord, deal with it, and continue to grow in the Lord. The next time you think about speaking against, or speaking evil of, or criticizing a brother, or when you're already speaking and, and you're in the middle of it, and the Spirit of God pricks your heart and says, why are you saying what you're saying? Instead of thinking, this is probably a safe person, because we kind of choose who we do that with, which really kind of means they're not going to call me out in a biblical manner like they should. Think about it this way. You're, you are usurping, I am usurping God's task as the only lawgiver and judge. I don't think I have the wherewithal or the capacity to do that. And I'm confident that you don't either. We don't. He's the only one that can do that. Not only that, but I'm also dragging that person that I'm obligating to listen to my rant. I'm dragging them down into the muck and the dirtiness of that situation as well. So I'm not only affecting my own life, I'm affecting theirs as well. And then it begins to spread to others also. And that's what James was addressing. A few weeks ago, we talked about the great commandment. You shall love, James, James uses the law a lot. And the great commandment was uh, Jesus had been asked and he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. All the law and the prophets depend, uh, uh, hang on these two commandments, the base and their foundation is love. But should we speak evil or criticize our brother, James says we become a judge of the law, not a doer of it. Rather than love, what, becomes, what comes from our mouth is evil and criticizing. Are there times in Scripture when Jesus speaks difficult things about hypocritical spiritual leaders? Absolutely there are. He is Jesus, so we're going to grant that. Uh, but we also find Paul doing that. 
We find James doing that. We find Peter doing it. We find Jude doing it as well. We just have, if we find ourselves in a situation, we just have to be ever so careful that we don't go from condemning something that's untrue, sliding into this speaking evil and criticizing the individual. And it is so, such a fine line. We have to be very, very careful. We're instructed to contend for the faith. We're not instructed to be contentious, but to contend for the faith. When we identify false teaching or a deception or a wolf in sheep's clothing, we should be extremely careful that what we say is done in the appropriate spirit. There can be times for hard words, but we have to be extremely careful that we don't transition into taking God's place as the lawgiver and the judge. And that's what James is telling to us. In conversation, we can slip into criticizing and speaking evil or speaking against by going a little too far. And then the person that I'm talking with takes that lead and he steps in and begins to criticize as well. And then I criticize based upon the criticism that he added to it. And then it just spins out of control. And then what we find ourselves doing is quenching the spirit, like what I mentioned that happened back in the early missionary days as well. Something that 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19 says not to do. Do not quench the Spirit of God. Just a couple of verses before, do not quench the Spirit of God. This is what he wrote. We exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly. So there's a way to warn the unruly without evil speaking and criticizing. And that's a very fine line. And I have to discern, I have to evaluate what them... Why are they unruly? And so that's a very fine line there. And then he says, comfort the faint-hearted and uphold the weak and be patient to all. See that no one renders evil for evil. Same word as what we have over in James. See that no one renders evil to evil for, for evil for, to anyone, but always pursue what's good both for yourselves uh, and for all. Are we not judging them if we conclude that they're unruly or faint-hearted or weak? It seems to hinge on me pursuing good or not pursuing good and my being evil and critical in my words. Let me give you an example. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you know it. Paul wrote, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you in the church in Corinth of a kind that's not tolerated even among the pagans for a man has his father's wife. Are you not arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn let him who has done this deed be removed from among you. So how can you go to that stage of an unrepentant, uh, open, sinful person being removed from them and not in some way judging? But this isn't a judgment unto eternal damnation. This is an evaluation. And the judgment that, that James uses is an evaluation type, a, a judgment unto eternal damnation. For though I'm absent in body, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 5, verse 3, I'm present in spirit, and if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you're delivered this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the, uh, in the, day of the Lord. Man, those are hard words. And so there's got to be some assessment that's going on, but the motive is for repentance and good, not just, to, not just to condemn and criticize and slander. So it seems that motive plays a significant part here. James 4 verse 12 then reads this way. 
There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. Who do you think he's referring to? I can go ahead and answer. There is only one lawgiver and judge. Who do you think he's referring to? Any particular man? Of course not. He's referring to God. Okay. And when we don't have the ability to do that, we shouldn't assume it by speaking against our brother either, and then even if, uh, and, and also against our neighbor. God is the one lawgiver and judge who's able to save and to destroy. And so I want to talk just for a minute about his ability to save and destroy. Salvation, we know this, we proclaim it, but it's always important. Salvation is of the Lord. If God didn't do it, if God didn't begin the work, we know that we would be in a, in a situation where we have no help. Salvation is of the Lord. Jesus' blood is able to cleanse me and is able to cleanse you and any person here who hasn't believed on the Lord yet. Today would be a great day. Jesus' blood is able to cleanse me or us from all sin and unrighteousness. It's God who does that. I don't have that capacity. And so I shouldn't take the role of God in judging or speaking evil against my brother. I don't have the capacity to discern that. God does though. Ephesians 1 says this, in Him, Jesus, we have redemption. We've been bought back through the blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. God and God alone is able to save. Amen? We know that. Romans chapter 8, I gave this to somebody a week ago, maybe it was last week. Romans chapter 8, verse 3 says, For God has done what the law Weakened by the flesh could not do. The law is righteous and holy, it's from God, but it wasn't, it wasn't effective because of the flesh that it has to engage it and be obedient to it. So God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled, on us, fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. I am confident that if we're walking in the Spirit, we're not going to speak evil of, speak against, criticize, or slander, neither our brother in the Lord or our neighbor either. And when we find ourselves doing that, we have ceased to walk in the Spirit, and it's appropriate to repent and step back into that right relationship. God alone is able to do that. Let Him and Him alone speak and judge what is necessary, is what James is saying. He's able to save, but He's also able to destroy. And we read Psalm 145, and the very last verse, or next to the last verse, spoke about the wicked and how they're going to be destroyed. And He does. And he will destroy. Um, don't let his patience confuse you that God no longer destroys because of sin. He's just being patient. And there's a time when he won't be patient anymore. When, speak, when speaking about being persecuted, Jesus said this to his disciples. Don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 10 verse 28. God and God alone is able to save and destroy, and He's the one that we should fear. He has the ability to kill uh, both soul and body. Don't you fear any man. Don't fear any person within the church. Don't fear anybody that's within our society. Fear God who's able to kill the body and the soul. 
Jesus told a parable of a rich man and, and a rich man and Lazarus, you know it, I'm sure. And in this story, we're not going to read it all, the unrighteous rich man found himself in a place of torment. And he called out to Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish and flame. And then a little bit later, he said, I beg you, Father, send, to, send him to my father's house because I have five brothers so that, they may, uh, so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. If someone is resurrected, a miraculous, that's going to get their attention, and then they're going to repent. And what was told to him is, no, they have Moses and the prophets. If they don't hear them, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. God will destroy. He does. He has and he will. Don't let his patience confuse you in that. He's able to save and destroy. And the last passage that I want to read is from Revelation 21, which speaks of his, both his ability to save and destroy. Revelation 21, verse 5, where he says, He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. He said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. He is able to save, just like James said. But he continues. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all the liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. God is able and will destroy. And he has and he will again. Don't let his patience confuse you. And the word destroy here in James 4.12 is not annihilation. Dr. Nye, the science guy, will learn that one day. I hope he repents before then. But he will learn that death does not mean annihilation. There is an eternity of suffering in hell apart from God. And then James says, so who are you, Jerry? Or Kathy. Sorry, I didn't tell you about this one. <laughs> or Patrick. Or Rachel. Who are you to judge your brother? Why not let God do it? And I would fill all of our names in the blank. Who are we to criticize or speak evil just because somebody did something that we didn't like? Just because somebody rubbed us the wrong way. They weren't who we wanted them to be, and so my expectations were disappointed. Let's let God take care of that. Let me focus on me and who I'm supposed to be, and let's let God focus on me, who I'm supposed to be, and everybody else as well. So, and this is quick, what should I do when I get so riled that I want to criticize? I mean, why didn't these old missionaries just receive us with open arms and thank God that we were there? What should I do when I get so riled that I want to criticize or speak evil against 
That's a great question. This is very simple. Talk to the right person, not someone else. Talk in the right manner. It would probably help to remember that you're not perfect either. So if you need a little time, take a little time. Talk to the right person. Talk in the right manner. Talk with the right goal. Not to just dump, but the goal is restoration. Right relationship and to God be the glory and the progression of his work. The goal isn't to pin somebody up against the wall and just give them the what for. And then be careful. Consider yourself before you do this, lest you also be tempted. That's from Galatians 6, different situation, but it's a good principle. And at least one of the temptations there would be to speak evil against someone because of their weakness. Be what I have delivered in Brazil, and I've done this to three or four churches in the area as well, and I'm going to do it here. Lord's laid it on my heart a couple of times recently. Be a courageous follower of Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean that you never speak when you should speak. It means that you speak in an appropriate manner when you should speak to the right person in a way that has the right goals. If there's an offense, we have instruction, Matthew chapter 16. If there are challenges that don't rise to being an offense, we have the one another's to guide our life. We have the ability to be spirit-filled and respond and act in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. And who are we to judge our brother when he has the lawgiver and the judge who's going to take care of that? Amen? Let's pray. Father, we bow before you. Thank you for the exhortation to be careful with our tongue. We recognize that it's a challenge. We recognize the need for spiritual maturity um, to engage and in the way that you want us to. And I pray that you would grant the desires of the prayers that are going up to you even that we would have that spiritual maturity. Father, I pray as well that you would drive home to our hearts and our minds that it is you and only you that are the judge and the lawgiver and that you're able to save and to destroy. And don't allow your patience to cause us to think that you won't destroy. So Father, if there's someone here this morning that's never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, may today be the day of salvation for that child, for that teenager, for someone stepping in here visiting, for someone who realizes I've been religious but don't have a relationship. We thank you for your grace, and we ask you to grant it. Grow us to this place as well, Lord, and we pray that in Christ's name. Amen.